Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. Sabrina and I have a really cool guest today. We have Lisa Bryant, the director and one of the EPs on Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. I don't know if anyone else has been watching it on Netflix, but it's amazing. Sabrina, have you watched? Oh, absolutely. I am enjoying the show. I mean, it's, wow, I can't, I can't take my eyes away from the screen. Well, Lisa, we want to welcome you. And right off the bat, when was the first time you heard the name Jeffrey Epstein? It probably was not that long before I started on the project, actually, because I think he and his people have kept him kind of uh, quiet over the years. Like, you might have heard some, he's this rich guy, and, and he's kind of this uh, millionaire, billionaire, you know, who knows, right? He, he, that, that, that's all that they wanted you to know. So I knew uh, very little. Um, and then I was involved with uh, Radical Media, the production company, and um, Joe Berlinger, who's a documentarian, and James Patterson. Um, the famous author had written a book about Jeffrey Epstein, who was his neighbor, ironically, very not next door neighbor, but lived, you know, less than a mile away. And he had heard the rumblings of what had happened in Florida. And he wrote a book about it actually um, called Filthy Rich uh, back in 2016. And nobody paid much attention to it, uh, which, you know, bothered him. And he's like, this is an st- important story that has to be told. So he uh, came to Netflix and to a radical media and long story short, I uh, stepped in as the director. We felt it was important to have a female. And, uh, and the more I started to learn about Jeffrey Epstein, the crazier it got, the angrier I got, you know, not only as a woman, but as a, as, you know, a human being in, in America, that the justice system failed at so many levels for so long a period of time. There was so much cover up and, and you know, that money and power and influence, you know, took uh, over, you know, just normal human decency and, and these poor young, um, you know, women who were victims, you know, underage in Florida, you know, being called prostitutes and things like that. It was atrocious. So I immediately really wanted to get involved and, you know, let the world know about that this is happening in plain sight. And, and, you know, as we learned later on, it was a worldwide sex trafficking ring. I think everybody just thought it was just this little Florida thing and looking brush it under the rug. What's fascinating, and you cover this in the first episode, Jeffrey Epstein's image was being very controlled from day one, from that Vanity Fair article where the author of the article was forced to take out everything controversial. And two of your survivors had already gone to the FBI, and that was in 1996. One would think a normal person, if they were reported to the FBI, I say normal, not wealthy and powerful and rich and white, uh, you know, had gone to, had been reported to the FBI. Uh, They probably would have been been looked at more carefully or looked at at all, really. And uh, these women, you know, they weren't taken seriously. Nobody looked at it. Perhaps in 96, you know, that's 25 years ago or 24 years ago, he could have been stopped. You know, so that's, you know, where, you know, I think we set out to in the, in the documentary is show that this could have been stopped, this behavior. Yet it was, you know, enabled, it was covered up. You know, I, I don't necessarily think Vanity Fair knew at the time, but because this guy was intimidating and, and, and his team, his tactics, 
you know, really, you know, shut that down, um, you know. Well, I'm curious, was there any documentation um, discovered that these girls uh, had reported this to the FBI or did it just like disappear, like vapor, like it never happened? Well, they discovered it later on when the Florida investigation happened. The first thing they started to do when they started hearing about these underage girls being abused is those detectives in, in Palm Beach started to look back in time. Let's see if he has any record when, when they started to get like a dozen girls and the same story. They didn't know each other, the same techniques, the same pattern, the same MO. They looked back in time and sure enough, they found the, the farmer sisters report. And, you know, I think it just sat there and, and perhaps we don't really know why they didn't look at it. Uh, maybe I actually think that Epstein did hear about it because we know um, his kind of partner in crime, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, had found out about it, actually. And, you know, I don't know that at that time she shut it down, but, but she then, you know, got in touch with Maria Farmer and said, you're going to regret that and started to threaten her. Maria, you know, ended up having to move numerous times, um, as she says in the show, because she was threatened, you know, I know where you live. And there are lots of ways to die on the West Side Highway and said things like that to her very threatening, um, you know, in an effort to keep her, you know, silent. You know, she did come forward. Nobody really listened. Nobody did anything. Um, but they did discover her. And then the FBI, you know, interviewed them back in, in, in 2007 and, and, you know, just started putting pieces together. But then even that didn't happen. You know, Alex Acosta is the U.S. attorney at the time. His office, um, you know, is investigating it. it. It gets kicked up to the FBI because the state attorney in Florida. It's, it's a complicated thing, but they didn't prosecute. So the so the uh, you know the, the the feds got involved, and then they really didn't. You know, they, they prosecuted a little bit, but it's a slap on the wrist. You know, for for more than three dozen women coming forward with you know horrific assault stories that would have put you know a normal man in prison for the rest of his life. He got a slap on the wrist, 18 months. Uh, he spent 13 in jail, 12 hours a day. He's allowed to leave, go to work. You know, reports he's having sex at work, having girls flown in from all over the world. He's, you know, taking walks and doing things that he wasn't allowed to do. And it's just all because, oh, and you know, he's this rich and wealthy guy who had a high-powered attorney, you know, team, you know, Ken Starr, Alan Dershowitz, uh, Roy Black, he's very, very, you know, cutthroat, well-known, you know, lawyers who, who could, you know, basically get him out of anything. What freaks me out, and in hindsight, it was right around 96 that both my mother and I met Jeffrey and Ghislaine. Um, and and I, I was watching the documentary and trying to sort of piece all this together. And I think about, oh my God, they, this was part of the social circle. And we met him and her mm -hmm. uh, through an extremely powerful and influential family. Mm -hmm. And I honestly have to say, within that whole social group, nobody knew. Yeah. Nobody really knew. And if they did, they did not discuss. But knowing this group, nobody knew. Yeah. Which it's really interesting it is. how separate he kept his two lives. But yeah. I, I don't know if it was that yeah. separate because I feel like people, you know, they, they kind of gravitate toward power and wealth and so if even if it were a rumor back in the day people you know probably just kind of you know shushed it and kind of went on because he was so powerful and except people want to be associated with but that except that 
within that circle in New York, my mother never knew. I never knew. Her friends never knew. No one, and they discussed everything. Those people, they just chatted and chatted and chatted. So really, as far as maybe that outer circle, uh, just sort of that New York social world, you never would have thought, I mean, and I have to say, my mom had them for dinner. They were very entertaining. They were a fun couple. And I look back and think, oh, you know. Yeah, it's, it's crazy because he did have different circles. And I think he wanted, no matter what, it, what wherever he was, in whatever setting, he had to be surrounded by people that would make him look like the smartest man in the room, whether it be in an academic setting, in a social setting. You know, Ghislaine was a connector for him. He wasn't actually that social. She was a gregarious one, you know, by all accounts. You know, she was the one who, you know, helped introduce him to these famous academics. He was very brilliant. Uh, you know, nobody could con his way through his whole life like that and lie and cheat and manipulate, even on his resumes and jobs and steal, you know, you know, billions of dollars from Leslie Wexner, one of the richest men, you know, on the planet. You know, it, it's like it, it, he was just a, it was all a facade. You know, it's just this crazy thing. I do think there were people who knew. Oh, yeah. um, there, especially it became evident in Florida. There were there. Were his enablers and, and, you know, his pilots and his drivers and things like that. There certainly were people on his payroll, uh, probably lower level people that knew, and there were higher level people that knew, you know, but not everybody that's in his black book even, even knew him, but he's the type that would have a black book and throw in anybody's name, you know, that he, he might've wanted to know. And, you know, some he did know, um, some he knew just socially at an academic function or a social function. And yeah, he kept, you know, probably young women, but he certainly in a party that you or your mother is going to be at. He might have a twenty-three-year-old girl on his arm, but he's not going to have a sixteen-year-old girl on his arm. So he was very good at hiding, you know, what he did. And then there was also others who helped him hide it. You know, it was intriguing to me that in the documentary how you guys refer to, you know, his network as this monstrous pyramid scheme because he had so many people involved on so many levels. Yeah. Well, and, and at the top of that pyramid scheme really sits Ghislaine Maxwell because she was kind of the mother figure who these women wouldn't trust, kind of like, oh, I know this great guy. He can help you pay for the Fashion Institute of Technology. What are your dreams? We can get you a massage, you know, a certificate, you know, whatever their interests were, you know, they, they were groomers. Uh, and, and she was at the top of, you know, in addition to him doing the grooming, but she went out and actively recruited initially. Then she kind of, in the when the Florida investigation happened, you know, she's, she's pretty smart. She kind of laid low. She didn't totally disappear. But she, she, she went to his other properties and was dealing with, you know, older women. He still had to have women, but older meaning like just barely of age. Um, and so the focus then became, you know, on him and these young underage girls in Florida. But yes, we had, you know, she was the main recruiter in the beginning. And then, you know, you had these other people who were protected in this non-prosecution agreement in Florida. You know, Sarah Kellen, um, and there's some other names, Nadia Marco, but these other women who probably, you know, were victims at one time, but they stayed with him for so long, you know, after they became adults, went to their 30s and are still recruiting girls from him, you know, you kind of lose that ability to be still called a victim, I think. Uh, so my heart, you know, breaks for them in some ways, but it's also like there's a lot of anger and those are the people that, you know, are, need to be brought in by the FBI questioned, you know, 
perhaps put on trial. And, and those are the co-conspirators that really need to be prosecuted. And at least, uh, you know, that would give some sort of um, relief uh, to these, you know, brave survivors who all they ever wanted was their day in court to see him rot in jail, to see these co-conspirators held accountable for their, you know, crimes and enabling some of them were forced to have sex with them as well. You know, I mean, it was the whole thing, the scale and scope, and just the gravity of it is, uh, you know, unbelievable. And it's really, I think, just still the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more to come. Um, you know, he may be gone, but his crimes are still living, in, you know, through others. Well, really. one of the things that I found fascinating is people don't know uh, Ghislaine's history. She comes from a very powerful English family, which was also marred in scandal. Yes. She's the daughter of... Robert Maxwell, who yes. was a publishing magnet, and he died mysteriously. And when he died, Jeffrey kind of, she came to America, and Jeffrey kind of took the place of that. And yep. I think that was part of, you know, they were beneficial to each other. Were they actually really, really in love? I think Ghislaine was, by all accounts, that I, you know, just through investigating and all of that, she was really, really in love with him. I think he was in love with himself, and he just needed sex. And Ghislaine was 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 convenient for him. I, I think he described her in the Vanity Fair article as, she's really my best friend. And I think once she really realized that he's not going to marry her, that's when she kind of, you know, slowly worked her way out of it. But the damage had been done. I mean, this she should have been, you know, protective of these girls, yet she took advantage of them. What's interesting, and I found during watching the documentary, it almost goes from a true crime story to a survivor's story. Yeah. As the director, you're supposed to stay neutral, especially in a documentary. At which point did it shift for you, going from true crime to a survivor's story? Well, you know, we really set out, we wanted to tell the story through the survivors. I mean, this is their story to tell. So that was really the goal all along, is that we wanted them to drive the narrative they were so brave in coming out. They've been silenced for so long. They weren't allowed to testify in Florida in the Florida case. This all happened behind closed doors, this secret plea deal. So we had set out really, because um, we started when he, he was still alive, when we started you know, filming, we were already into our second episode, actually, of you know what was going to be a four or a five part series. Um, and it was difficult from the get-go because people were terrified of him. But they why were, didn't anyone, again, because you started when he was alive, I am surprised that no one from him te his team, other than Alan Dershowitz. You're surprised? No, no, no. Well, no, I'm not surprised that Alan Dershowitz spoke, but that no one else stepped up to defend him. Everyone ran. I think, well, of course, everybody's scared. Why but not? usually in a documentary, someone's going to step in to try and tell another side. Did you reach out to anyone or did everyone just run? We reached out to everybody on Acosta's team, everybody uh, who was associated with him in any way. We called you know, dozens of names that were in the Black Book who we thought were affiliated, because again, everybody in that Black Book was not affiliated with him, didn't even know him, some of them we discovered. Um, but nobody wanted anything to do with him. They knew. They knew he was being investigated again. They knew that the, the gig was up with them. Uh, they you know, wanted no part of it because he, you know, his name is was bad news even before, you know, he was arrested. Word was out there that, you know, I think the Miami Herald story came out, you know, put it back in, in the limelight. We had already been filming before that started too. So really, he was aware that we 
we're doing the documentary. Um, you know, we staked out a house a couple of times, you know, took down my own private license plate. Nothing ever happened. It's interesting. I wonder if looking back, he kind of knew that, well, you know, I've gotten away with it for so long. You know, I think on one hand, he thinks he's above the law for sure for years and years and years. Um, but he never really tried to shut us down, um, which is interesting because, as we know, he shut ABC down several years ago. He's managed to shut down all the media kind of in, in Florida or was able to twist it his way. You know, the girls are coming after me and you know what I mean? Uh, so it was interesting that he didn't really try to, to shut us down. And, and uh, so that was good. But then all of a sudden, we're filming this documentary, having a hard time even really getting the survivors to take part. You know, when we first interviewed uh, one of the women, um, she said, I I'm afraid, uh, I'll, but I'll, I'll talk in silhouette. So we interviewed her in silhouette. Then he's arrested, and she and she she feels empowered to come out. We re-interview her on camera. I mean, to me, it just goes to show the fear that he, he put in these women. And you can only imagine, you know, every, you know, all these girls who were just, you know, teenagers at the time, but that continued throughout their whole life because there's always that risk that they're going to say something. Are they going to, you know, you know, so it, it, it's kind of crazy and our whole world turned upside down overnight and we kind of ended up starting to put on our news hats, you know, and it's very hard for a documentary team to, to follow breaking news. It's like, you, you don't want to do that, but in this case we had to, and, and we had to be nimble and all this stuff is going on and more people were willing to come forward, but less people now it's out there all this is real that he's been doing and it's even worse than you would imagine so anybody on his side to talk was insane he would you know masturbate in front of them. he would touch them there were probably you know out of you know however many there were hundreds of, of underage girls actually we had one girl in the program who said at my high school alone there were probably 200 girls over the four years that i was there that were recruited so I would say maybe a third or a quarter of those girls he actually had intercourse with. And he, he groomed them. He groomed It wasn't, you know, it was the girls that kept coming back that he manipulated. He made them feel like they couldn't live without him. You know, remember he preyed upon very vulnerable girls. These are girls who, who needed something. Either they uh, had they'd been sexually assaulted in the past. Uh, they were living on the streets, perhaps. Their, you know, their parents were addicts, those kinds of things. So... You know, he knew that, his, his recruiters knew that, and, you know, they would, he would just prey upon them, and, and, and he, you know, if he's getting a little, you know, if he gets to, you know, third base, you know, he, he's okay with that. Some girls, he might hit a home run. I mean, it was like a game to him, I think, you know, and that's part of the challenge uh, for him, I think, was that, you know, he had the same routine, a massage, at least, you know, in Florida, for sure, and most of the other cases too, it's always started with massage. Yeah, it's a it was a very predictable pattern. But, right. but the outcome was going to be different in every girl, and I think that was what excited him. It was like, oh, today she might let me do this. Right. Or, you know what I mean? It was like that was the chase for him. He had to have it. He was so sexually addicted. You know, beyond I think anything pedophilia kind of we've ever seen from anybody. Like some of the women said, it he had it, it had to have it at least three times a day. Sometimes up to six and seven different girls in a day. How's it even possible? Hold on. I want to go to the island. What about the, that, I mean, the that island, to me no. was, that, that's a horror movie. It is. And that, you know, as, as Virginia Dufresne, who's one of the very, you know, brave survivors, describes as pedophile island. There were orgies that happened there. Very powerful people went there. Not all the powerful people went there you know, did bad things, but, you know, people went there, even people who deny being there went there. Um, but again, 
you know, they were secluded. Sarah Ransom, so brave, was so horribly abused there, um, came forward and was telling her story. She tried to, to escape the island, but there were cameras there. And they came back. His henchmen came back, and they, they located her on the camera, and they brought her back. She was contemplating jumping in to the, you know, it's like a 10-mile swim to St. Thomas. She was going to do that rather than stay there and be raped by this man. She was trapped. Um, and she also said, you know, as, as they're flying in, you, it was obvious that everybody at the airport knew. They knew what was going on. He's trailed by these young women. Um, you know, it was like an open secret, you know, over there. And, and his own little private island, he could do whatever he wanted. Your team did an excellent job in delivering a complete and intimate look for these survivors. You really gave them a voice. Thank you. That was our goal. It really was because, again, and they never even had their day in court. You know, the Judge Berman here in New York finally let them talk, but it wasn't what they wanted. He wasn't sitting there. You know, they wanted him to hear their story. But, um, you know, we're proud and, and hope that, you know, it, it empowers more people to action. It empowers more women to feel safe in coming forward. Um, and and they, they need to be respected. They need to be listened to. They need to be heard. They just feel like they were, you know, treated like garbage. And, you know, all of the survivors that we spoke with have reached out and said so, they felt so much support. Um, people think, you know, they're, they're thankful they came out. They were, they were, you know, terrified. Yes, it's painful to relive it because when you have a trauma, even 15 years ago, it's something you still live with every day. And it was traumatizing to talk about it, but they're so glad they did. And we really let them drive the narrative. They didn't want, you know, it's kind of like, tell me your story or tell me what do you want to say, you know, and not, not like, what about this? What about that? Because that's not the way to go. You build trust with these women. We met with each of them ahead of time, talked them up, talked to their attorneys. Um, you know, it's about trust and feeling safe. Um, and I hope, you know, I think it shines through that, that they did, you know, feel trust in us. And, and that's really the most important thing for me is, is, is to get their story out there and let, let the rest of the world, because Netflix is on in 190 countries. You know, he might be a news blip in Tokyo, you know, that they saw some guy committed suicide or did he get, was he murdered or what, you know, that's, you know, type of knowledge. But what we wanted to put out there is through these women's voices, through Epstein's own depositions, tell this crazy story of how power and money, you know, won out at all costs and that, you know, the public officials did not do their jobs, that the judicial system is broken. This is not just happening in the United States. This is happening all over the world. You know, powerful men in, in Taiwan, powerful men in wherever, Brazil, they, you know, they rule. And I think it's just, you know, it's like the class system. It's just, you know, it's very evident. And uh, sexual assault, you know, is always been brushed under the rug. And, and hopefully now, uh, you know, there's, there'll be some accountability and people feel empowered to, to, to talk about it. You had a really interesting and unexpected corroborating witness. Steve Scully on the island. On yes. the island, who was, for lack of a better na description, is there, was the IT guy. Right, you see, I see a guy who worked for him and could fall into that, am I complicit kind of thing? Did he know? Uh, he, he certainly wasn't an enabler, but did he know? You know, he's one of those, like, 
you know, I definitely knew, I saw some, he said he saw some, you know, naked girl, and, and, you know, he's the one who saw Prince Andrew with a topless girl. He didn't really know how young that girl was. Yeah, he saw things, but his job was to get in and out of there. He wasn't hanging out. He went to fix the phones. He went to fix that. But he admits, you know, I have to give him a lot of credit because, you know, he was there at a time where things were happening, and he felt, you know, well, he got out, you know, he, you know, the pool guy asked him, as he says, the pool guy says, you know, why are you doing this? It's kind of funny, but, you know, I would have turned it right back on the pool. Why are you doing this? I you know, think, that was my question to you. Why are you doing this? Exactly. We probably didn't have that conversation. Um, but, you know, his response was, you know, I do have two daughters. And he never went back again after he said, I wouldn't let my daughter within five miles of that guy. It was a wake up call. I don't need money this bad for any reason. And, and he just realized wow, you know, I can't believe, and, and, he, and I thought he, his testimony was very powerful, very credible, and, you know, now we know, uh, he, he was interviewed by the FBI um, after, you know, uh, we, we, under, uh, we talked to him twice, but, uh, you know, he, he told the FBI and helped to identify that it was Prince Andrew who was, you know, fondling this half-naked girl who turns out to be Virginia Giuffre, the accuser of Prince Andrew. So he corroborates that, that story uh, very credibly. And now Prince Andrew's plight is still, you know, uh, well, just in the, just in the last, just in the last week, it's, it's back in the headlines. Yeah, back in the headlines. A uh, large part, I think, to Steve Scully's statements corroborating Virginia again. Yeah. You know, Jeffrey Epstein's death has caused a secondary controversy through all of this. Is there any concern that this will sort of overshadow these survivor stories, at least in the short term? Well, it doesn't in our documentary. So, you know, we, we had been in production for so long. We felt when he died, the story sort of died. We're, yes, we're still following it. Um, there's the aftermath a little bit. We had to investigate the possible murder aspect of it. Uh, you know, I say investigate. We want to leave it to the audience. Uh, to decide, you know, whether or not they, they what, what do they think? I mean, obviously it was ruled a suicide. You know, I have no reason to think it wouldn't have been. This is a sex addict who was used to going all over the world at the, whenever he wanted. So I'm surprised he didn't kill himself after the second day when he knew he wasn't getting bail. I, I am too, because he was such a control freak. It's, yeah. it's the ultimate control. But I think that he still had that that privileged attitude, you know, because he was so powerful, like, I'll get past this one, too. He had been getting away with it for so long. I think that you're right. And I think that's why it was after the bail hearing when he learned, because it, it was a week or two before. Well, not, not even well he, had a, he had attempted the week before, two weeks right. before, by trying to slit his own throat. Right. And that didn't happen. Uh, so... Yeah, I think that once he really knew, like, I, I think you're right that uh, he, Serena, that, that he he might have thought he was going to get out of it. When it became clear he was not getting bail and he was going to go to trial, there's no way he was going to get out of it. I think he knew he was done. Um, and, and shortly after they tried, and then he, you know, found the right moment and did it. But there is also the evidence that the cameras weren't working at the jail and they were overstaffed and they were sleeping and all these weird things. You know, this is a, a, a jail that housed El Chapo and took care of Bernie Madoff and some of the, you know, until Jeffrey Epstein came along, some of the worst, you know, criminals ever. So how could that all those things happen just in the same time, the same moment that he's 
going to take his own life. So, so naturally, um, you know, cons the conspiracy theories would come out about that. I don't even know. It, it's really, I don't know that we'll ever know what the real outcome, but it's not that far-fetched that he would have been murdered. So many people knew things. He had videotapes. Uh, he had cameras everywhere. You know, black blackmail scheme was something that we heard from day one. You know, the girls talk about it. Um, you know, so there are a lot of people that wanted him dead. So it's not that out of the realm. But, you know, we wanted viewers just to hear both sides. It's not up to us to we, you know, really have no opinion. Inmates don't take kindly to pedophiles either, by the way. No. That's very true. They're looked at worse than murderers. <laughs> you, his, did his brother end up getting all the money? There's over $500 million. No, as a matter of fact, good news since the documentary. Uh, it looks like the girl, the, the survivors who, you know, there's been, I think, over more than 70 who there's a time period to file, you know, against the estate. Um, I, the, most of that money, there's a certain amount, I think, that he, by law, his, his brother will get. It's just a whatever percentage. But the majority of that money, fortunately, is going to go to the survivors. So that's the silver lining a little bit here, that there's going to be some compensation that can't bring him back, that can't, you know, ever take away anything. But it is a, you know, a form of justice that they can see a little bit. Um, and uh, it'll take time for it to be, you know, divvied up and all of that or how the legal process will have to take place. But, you know, it's been, he died in, uh, in August. So just two days after the documentary came out, they finally, I think that the pressure of just it being back in the news really in a big way again, uh, you know, there was all these tit-for-tat fighting. Well, no, we're not going to do this, that, and the other. All of a sudden, they wrapped it up. So I think the Virgin Islands looked very bad. Yeah. Uh, and so I feel good in knowing that hopefully that the pressure to get them to sign off on, yes, they're going to give it to the girls. It's done deal. Um, now it's just a matter of, you know, working its way through, through, through the system in a normal way, not just are we going to do it or are we not? You know, it's very, you know, they deserve it. Nobody deserves it more than they do. And, and I'm sure his brother is just fine. And, I, and, and everybody, I'm very curious about his brother's, you know, knowledge or, or involvement. Last question, because I think people are actually fascinated by this. Jelaine's in the wind. Where is she? Well, I don't even know if the FBI knows. There's, there's a theory that, that nobody knows. Perhaps she's in a country where there's no extradition. Uh, her attorneys are the only ones that probably really know. The FBI also, on the other hand, might know she could be cooperating with them. My per personal perspective is that maybe they're going to go after some of the lower level, uh, and I say lower level, uh, only like, you know, she's at the top of the pyramid. We've got the next level of like Sarah Killen and Nadia Marcinkova, these other adult recruiters, that they're going to probably try to go after them and have them roll on her because you have to be so, so, so buttoned up. It's like to try to arrest Jeffrey Epstein. You have because, you know, assault cases are often, if he said, she said, you know, times 100, it, 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 how how's that even happened? But, but it's true. You have to be so buttoned up. And she's, you know, long denied it. She's got some protection in, in this non-prosecution agreement. So I would not be surprised to see one of the, the uh, underlings be arrested first. I know the FBI is trying to bring all of them, you know, in. But they have to be super careful and buttoned up. She's probably in a protection program somewhere. She's the key. <laughs> well, no, there's been, there have been sightings. In Israel, we've heard she's in Brazil, but Israel is a good bet. Uh, uh, you know, I don't think she's going to be in Great Britain or in France where her sisters are. I just think that's too obvious. But 
I don't know. <laughs> Lisa, you are amazing. Brilliant work. Uh, if anyone has not seen it, you must see it. Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. Lisa, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for showing the interest. It's, it's a hard watch at times, but it's very important. And, and, you know, I think you'll have a lot of empathy for young women and, and, and who are really survivors. So thank you. <laughs>